Take your copy of God's Word and open it with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 5. And we're going to look at that final section from verses 30 through 47. John, chapter 5, verse 30. While you're turning there, let me ask you a question. How many of you here have ever served on jury duty? Anyone? I see a lot of hands today. I've been summoned, but I've never been chosen. Not sure if that's a good thing or not. Pastor Joe was a jury foreman one time, so you can ask him about that after the service. I tell you that because sometimes jury duty can last a long time. I don't know if you know, but according to the Guinness Book of World Records, the longest trial in history began in 1987. It was a trial in Manhattan Beach, California, involving a preschool. Three of their employees were charged with a very serious crime, and this trial lasted, get this, 919 days. And after 919 days, finally, one defendant was acquitted, and the other two resulted in a hung jury. I'm so glad I didn't serve on that jury. That was a very, very long trial. Well, in our passage this morning, it is as if Jesus is on trial. There is a sense in which his trial did not begin when he was arrested. There's a sense in which Jesus was on trial his entire earthly ministry as the people debated, who is Jesus? Is he for real? Is he really the Savior, the Son of God, the Messiah, all of these claims that Jesus is making, are they really true? Maybe for some of you today, it's as if Jesus is still on trial in your heart. Every person here will have to come to a verdict when it comes to Jesus. Is he my Lord? Will I follow him? Now, the verses we're going to read this morning certainly, certainly have the feeling of a courtroom. Two words that you're going to notice again and again, witness and testimony. Witness and testimony. Jesus just testified on his own behalf. In the verses before, which we studied the last two Sundays, Jesus made some claims about himself. Jesus claimed to be equal with God, calling God his Father. He claimed to do only what the Father was doing. He claimed to be loved by the Father. He claimed to have the ability to impart life, something only God can do. He claimed that he had the authority to judge all of mankind, and the power to raise the dead. Jesus said that he was worthy of honor, and he even had the audacity to say, if you do not honor me, you do not honor the Father either. Now, these are all amazing claims that Jesus made. 
But there was a problem. In ancient days, if a man testified on his own behalf and there were no other witnesses, his witness, his testimony was not considered valid. There had to be at least two or three witnesses. So I want you to notice what Jesus does. In verse 30, he summarizes the claims that he made, which we studied these last couple of weeks. Then in verse 31, he acknowledges that according to the law, the testimony of one man is insufficient. He says, if I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. When Jesus said, my witness is not true, that doesn't mean that the words that he spoke were not true. That means his testimony would not be considered true if there are not any other witnesses. So what does Jesus do? Starting in the very next verse, he begins to call some witnesses to the stand. He calls some witnesses to testify in his defense, on his behalf. He's going to call four different witnesses and tell us how these witnesses speak of him. We're going to see what those witnesses have to say and why it matters for our lives today. First of all, you'll notice he calls the witness of man. The witness of man. Look at verse 33. You have sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. This first witness that Jesus figuratively calls to the stand, the man that Jesus calls was John, John the Baptist. Now, maybe when you read this, you find it a little bit strange that Jesus, the Son of God, would actually appeal to John, a mere man, to testify on his behalf. Doesn't that seem a little strange? Well, if so, notice what Jesus said next in verse 34. Yet, I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. I do not receive. That word receive also can translate seek. I don't seek man's testimony. In other words, Jesus did not need the testimony of John the Baptist for his words to be true. Jesus did not need John's testimony but they did. He said, I'm calling up John. I'm putting John the Baptist on the stand so that maybe, if you won't listen to me, maybe, perhaps, you will listen to him and be saved. Verse 35, he was the burning and shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. I love that. Jesus called him a burning and shining lamp. That would look pretty good on a business card, wouldn't it? That'd look pretty good on a resume. What do you do? I'm a burning and shining lamp. A lamp does not light itself. When you have a lamp, the oil has to be supplied by another. When you have a lamp, someone else has to light it. 
When you have a lamp, it burns from within and it consumes itself so that light can go out and give direction to those who are in the dark. What a beautiful picture of what God wants to do in our lives. I wonder, could that be said about you this morning? Is your life a burning and shining lamp? Oh, that we had a few more burning and shining lamps in the world today. But as a burning and shining lamp, Jesus said to them, you were willing to rejoice in his light. Notice this, for a time. Jesus said to these, his enemies, oh, you enjoyed John's preaching for a little while. You loved what he had to say for a time. You came out to hear him preach until, until what? Until John the Baptist pointed them to Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the Son of the world. And all of a sudden, they weren't so interested in John the Baptist anymore. Now, don't miss the point. The point is, God put someone in their lives, someone they knew, someone that for a while they actually respected who pointed them to Jesus. There was a human messenger who testified to them and told them, Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Savior of the world. That guy that they went out to hear preach so many times, he testified to them what he had personally seen when he baptized Jesus and the Holy Spirit came down upon him and the Father spoke and said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Now, none of us here have had the opportunity to meet John the Baptist yet, but if you're here today, you probably know someone whose life was transformed by the gospel. You probably know a human witness, someone whose life was set free from sin or addiction, a life of hopelessness and despair. You probably know someone who was on that road to death and destruction, and then Jesus got a hold of them. There is a conversation that I have had, I don't know how many times since I have been your pastor, many times I'll be out in the community and somebody who's not part of First Baptist Church of Homestead but who knows who I am, they will say to me, Pastor Howard, is it true that so-and-so is a member of your church? And they'll name somebody here. And my first thought is always, uh-oh, what did they do? Okay. But after I get over that, I'll say, yes, that man or that woman is a member of our church. And they'll say to me, oh, I've known that person for a long time. If you only knew who they were before they met Jesus, I can't tell you how many times I've had that conversation. Hey, I think I've had that conversation about some of you in this room here today. Maybe you know such a person. Maybe you are such a person. But if you don't know such a person, may I just humbly offer myself and say, if you only knew who I was and where I was going, 
you would know it is only by the grace of God that I am who I am or where I am today. I believe that if you die without Christ, one day you'll stand before God and he will remind you of every single person he put in your life who was living proof of the power of God and the truth of the gospel. But Jesus called up to the stand that human witness of John the Baptist. We have the witness of man. Now it's time for the next witness. Jesus calls to the stand the witness of Jesus' works. The witness of his own works. Look at verse 36. But I have a greater witness than John's for the works which the Father has given me to finish. The very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. After Jesus called John to the stand, he calls his own works to the stand. What works? He gave hearing to the deaf. He gave speech to the mute. He gave sight to the blind. He cleansed the lepers. He turned water into wine. He walked upon the water. He cast out demons. He raised the dead. In other words, Jesus did the kind of things you would expect God to do if God were to take on flesh and dwell among us. That's what he did. Years ago, J.C. Ryle said that there were five distinguishing marks when it comes to the works that Jesus performed. He pointed out their number. They were not few. They were many. He pointed out their greatness. Jesus did not do parlor tricks. Jesus did not pull rabbits out of hats. These were great and mighty acts which defied the laws of nature. He pointed out their publicity, that Jesus normally didn't perform miracles in a corner. He frequently performed miracles in public before many witnesses. He pointed out the character of Jesus' works. These were almost always acts of love and mercy to show compassion to someone who was suffering. He pointed out that these works appealed to man's senses. In other words, you could smell the stench of Lazarus when he walked out of that grave. You could taste the food that Jesus had multiplied. I believe we can add a few more distinguishing marks. I would point out their effectiveness. When Jesus healed, he healed perfectly. He healed completely. There was a night and day difference between the miracles that Jesus performed and the so-called, well, the tricks that the so-called faith healers oftentimes do today. I would point out that normally these works were not staged. These were works that Jesus did as he was traveling, as he was just going about the course of life. These were intentional. He never performed a miracle just for the sake of performing a miracle. Every time there was a message. You could say all of these things and so much more about the works 
which Jesus performed and these works Jesus calls to the stand to allow them to testify for him because no one ever performed the works that Jesus did. Even his enemies acknowledged that his works were real. They accused him of doing them by the power of Satan. But they could not, and they did not deny that Jesus actually did these things. You remember what Nicodemus said in John 3, we know you must be a teacher sent from God, because otherwise, how else could someone do these works unless God be with him? All these years, Jesus spent traveling in Galilee and Judah and Samaria, performing all of these works. That's part of the reason why the gospel spread so quickly in the first century. Because after so many people had seen and experienced all of these works of Jesus, and then when those same people heard later on that this Jesus had died on the cross, and that this Jesus rose from the the dead, you know what? Made perfect sense. That guy that healed my eyes, that gave me sight, oh yeah, I believe he rose from the dead. That guy that healed my lame brother, oh yeah, I believe he rose from the dead. And you know what? God is still working. He's still the same God. He hasn't changed. He can still do anything he did. And I've experienced it. Maybe you have as well. But we see these works that Jesus calls upon to testify for him. Now, he calls a third witness in this passage. He calls the witness of the Father's voice. The witness of the Father's voice. In verse 32, Jesus said, There is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. Now that word, another, there's another who bears witness to me. That word means another of the same type, another of the same kind, of the same essence. That's why I believe he's referring to the Father. But look at verse 37. And the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. Jesus calls his own Father to the stand and says, He has testified of me. Now, in what way did the Father testify of Jesus? Well, I believe that he testified of Jesus quite literally when Jesus was baptized and the Father spoke. The Father testified of Jesus quite literally at the transfiguration. These particular Jews in John chapter 5 that were so mad at Jesus, they were not present for when that happened. But I believe you could also argue that every time God acted on Israel's behalf, the Father was testifying. Every time he provided for them, uh, every time he protected them, You might could say everything that God does providentially in our lives that would cause us to turn to him and to see him. Ultimately, the Father testified on behalf of Jesus when he raised him from the dead. Romans 1.4 says Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. When Jesus rose from the dead, the Father declared He is the Son of God. He is everything He claimed to be. 
So Jesus refers to the witness of his father, but then I want you to notice, he spends most of his time talking about this fourth and final witness, the witness of the scriptures, the witness of the scriptures. Look at verse 38. But you do not have his word abiding in you, because whom he sent, him you do not believe. Jesus said, you don't have the Father's word abiding in you. And by word, we know he's referring to the scriptures, which would be the Old Testament, because he tells us in the very next verse. But it's interesting that he would say that God's word is not abiding in you because Jesus was talking to some of the greatest students and the most disciplined students of the scripture Yes, they were reading it. Yes, they were studying it. But Jesus said, it's not abiding in you. They were not allowing it to penetrate them. They were not allowing it to change them. Do you understand that when we read the scriptures, it is essential that we do so from a posture of surrender? When we read the scriptures, it's essential that we do so having made up our minds that we will hear and follow whatever God says. On this point, they failed. Yes, they were reading, they were studying the scriptures, but it did not abide in them. Look at verse 39. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. Notice they didn't just read the scriptures, they didn't just study the scriptures. They searched the scriptures, the same word that would be used of a hunter who was hunting. They searched the scriptures. Why? Because you believe that in them you have eternal life. There's something that I need to say here, church, and I really need you to pay attention to this because it would be very easy for some of you to completely misunderstand what I'm about to say. So please, hear me very carefully. It is possible to trust in the Scriptures instead of trusting in Christ for your salvation. It is possible. It is possible to elevate the Scriptures to the place of God himself, it is possible. Again, hear me carefully. This is the word of God. It is inerrant. It is inspired. It is infallible. Jesus said every jot and tittle will be fulfilled. In other words, every I will be dotted and every T will be crossed. He said on the Emmaus road to the disciples, how foolish not to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Jesus said, believe all of it. But hear me carefully. Reading the Bible will not save you. Memorizing God's word, as good as that is, will not save you. I've got news for you. The devil can cite scriptures better than you can. 
And if studying the word of God guaranteed your salvation, these scribes and Pharisees would have been first in line to enter the kingdom of God. Skip down to verse 45. Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? When Jesus referred to Moses, keep in mind, he's talking about the scriptures that Moses wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's talking about the first five books of the Bible. These Jews prided themselves in their knowledge of Moses and what Moses had written. But Jesus said one day, when you stand before God at judgment, I'm not going to accuse you. Moses is going to accuse you. And he's going to say, if you really believed the Scriptures, if you really believed them, you would also believe in Christ because the Scriptures point to him. The Scriptures do not save us. The Scriptures point us to the Savior. Every single verse is about Jesus. Every single verse reflects Jesus, points to Jesus. If that's not enough, this book is full of prophecies which only Jesus could fulfill and did fulfill. Let me illustrate it to you this way. Until very, very recently, the Willis Tower was the tallest building in the United States. Until just a few years ago. Now it's actually the third tallest building in the United States. It's in Chicago, Illinois. I have not been there, but if you were to visit Chicago, if you were to visit the Willis Tower, you could actually get in an elevator and you could go all the way to the top. And do you know what you can do? They have a sky deck. And from that sky deck, there is a glass balcony. And if you want to, you can walk out on that glass balcony and look down at the street below. From that glass balcony, you can look out at Chicago, and you can see Lake Michigan. You can see four other states. How many of you are afraid of heights? Anybody? How many of you are thinking, Pastor, no way, no how would I ever do that? Well, I want you to just use your imagination for a moment. I want you to imagine that you go to the Willis Tower and you go up to that glass balcony and you see a man there and he says to you, would you look at this beautiful window? See how it is set in steel? Did you see how it is perfectly tinted? Doesn't see anything beyond the window, just the window. Now imagine that guy pulls out a pocket knife and he starts to scrape the glass. Someone says, excuse me, sir, what are you doing? I'm going to do a chemical analysis on this glass because I want to know what this window is really made of. And he's all excited about that window. 
Can you see that this man has missed the point? The point of the window is to display the beauty of what is on the other side of it. The Bible is like a window into heaven. When we read it, we see the greatness and the beauty and the loveliness and the holiness of God, and it points us to Christ. But the Bible is not an end in itself. That's why you can, if you're not careful, be like the scribes and Pharisees and study this book your whole life and still be lost. I fear that crowd of people in John chapter 5, they're not the only ones scraping the window, if you know what I mean. If you read the Bible for the purpose of winning that next argument, you are scraping the window. If you will spend hours on a minute detail of the text that doesn't even have eternal ramifications, but you don't have time to share the gospel or serve God, you are scraping the window. Yes, read the scriptures. Study the scriptures. Be like Apollos, who the Bible says was mighty in the scriptures, but also see Christ. Jesus called all of these witnesses to the stand to testify in his defense, to testify that he is everything that he claimed to be, but then that leads us to another question. If Jesus was really everything he claimed to be, and if we really have all of these witnesses testifying on his behalf, why is it that they would not believe, and even today, so many still will not believe? In verses 40 through 44, it's kind of like a parenthesis. And Jesus answers that question. He tells us why many will not believe. And I believe, eyes here, everybody focus right here, okay? Right here. I believe what Jesus said can be summarized in this one statement. Listen to this. Here's the reason. The unbeliever is not willing to believe because he chooses to pursue man's approval instead of the love of God. That's a summary statement of what we're about to read in verses 40 through 44. The unbeliever is not willing to believe because he chooses to pursue man's approval instead of the love of God. Let's see it. Verse 40. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. Notice what he said was the problem. They were not willing. The problem is not that they were not able. The problem is not a lack of opportunity. The problem is not a lack of evidence. The problem is not a lack of light. And the problem certainly is not that God was not willing to save them. 1 Timothy 2, 4 says, God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. 
2 Peter 3, 9 says, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God was willing to save them, but they were not willing to be saved. This is always the issue. John said, John chapter 3, man refuses to believe because he loves the darkness and hates the light because his deeds are evil. That's always the issue. A man will say, oh yes, I read the Bible and I want to believe it. I just can't. That man may even sound persuasive for a while until you begin to look more closely at his life and you see that there's an affair or he's stealing from his boss or he's lying on his taxes and he refuses to repent. And you suddenly see that's the real problem. Now, There's another problem. Look at verse 41. I do not receive honor from men, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. How can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God. Now, if you follow Jesus' logic, if you follow the argument that he is making, Jesus said to them, you don't believe because you don't have the love of God in you. And the reason why you don't have the love of God in you is because you prefer, you choose the honor that comes from men instead. In other words, you have decided that the applause of men matters more to you than the glory of God. That was their problem. And that is the problem for most of the people with whom you will share the gospel today. The problem is not with God. The problem is not that there's a defect in the gospel. The problem is not that it's it's no longer the power of God unto salvation. No, the problem is they are unwilling to believe because they choose to pursue man's approval instead of the love of God. I plead with you this morning not to make that mistake, to make up your mind right now that the only applause that matters to you is the applause of nail-scarred hands. That's it. Sometimes we'll sing this song, if none go with me, still I will follow. No turning back. No turning back. Can you say that this morning? If you'll do that, I believe you'll hear these witnesses. They're still speaking. They still testify. We can still hear the witness of those whose lives have been transformed by the gospel We can still see God at work around us. We can still hear the Father speaking, sometimes through that still, small voice. We can still see the Scriptures pointing us to Christ. And they tell us that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Our Lord and our God, we thank you that Jesus was everything that he claimed to be. And we thank you that you have given to us these many witnesses which point us to Christ and give us every reason to believe that he is 
Lord. And we've seen, oh God, that the problem is not a lack of of evidence. The problem is not a lack of light. You've given us everything that we need that we would be accountable to you for how we respond to the gospel. And we know that every person here this morning who does not know Christ, they are accountable for what they've seen, what they have heard, and one day, God, if they die without Christ, we, we know they'll stand before you and be reminded of all of the witnesses in their life who pointed them to Christ. God, we pray if there's anybody here today who needs to take that step and say, I'm not going to choose the applause of men or man's approval anymore. I want to come to Christ and follow him. God, I pray this would be that day of salvation, that you would give them the grace that they need to be able to to call upon you and take that uh, act of surrender and say, Jesus, here I am. All that I am, all that I have is yours. God, would you work in hearts this morning, those in this room, those who maybe are hearing or will hear this message uh, online. But Father, I pray that you would use this to draw men and women to Christ. God, I pray for every one of us here today, you'd help us to take what we've learned And we've looked at some deep truths these past few weeks. But God, help us uh, to be discerning. Help us, Lord, to take all of this and and apply it to our lives and be ready to give a reason for the hope that we have in us. Thank you, O God, for this time we could spend in your word today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you're here this morning and if you saw yourself in some of these verses... You do not honor Jesus. You prefer the honor of men. You do not have the love of God in you. You do not believe because you are not willing to believe. Maybe as you read some of these things that we've talked about today, you would have to say, that really describes my life. That describes where I am. The good news is, you don't have to remain there. You can come. You can be saved. And God is inviting you today to take that step, the most important step in all of life, that of following Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. The Bible says uh, that if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you're willing this morning to acknowledge that you're a sinner, that you've broken God's law, that you're guilty, that you cannot save yourself, that Jesus died for you in your place, that he rose again If you'll call on him and say, Jesus, be Lord of my life, I believe you, I will follow you, he will save you right now. And if you're here today and you need to take that step, don't leave here today without Christ, because as we've seen, one day when we stand before God, we'll be reminded of all of the witnesses God put in our lives who testified to us and who warned us and who pointed us to Jesus. I'm going to be here at the very front of the sanctuary after the service is over. If you have questions, if you just want me to pray for you, or if you want to take that step and say, Pastor, today I need to be saved. I'd love to uh, share with you, pray with you, anything I can do so that you can know Christ personally. Uh, If you just have a, a battle that you're facing spiritually and you just need somebody to pray for you, please feel free to come and talk to me after the service and we'll pray together.